If we are going to do God's will, God's will, we must finish the task. Stand with me as we read from Nehemiah chapter 6. <coughs> Excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll read verses 15 and 16 together. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that just as Nehemiah and the Jews that he led finished the task, that we would finish ours as well. Help us in this time. Use your word to speak to us, to guide us, to help us to be obedient to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. What a difference six months can make. Just six months prior to this, Nehemiah is bearing the king's cup in Susa. Now, six months later, he is putting the finishing touches on the gates of the new wall of Jerusalem. 800 miles away as the crow flies from where he was. In six months, Nehemiah has convinced the king not only to permit, but to finance the project. He has taken a journey close to about 50 days to complete. He has arrived in the land of his fathers toward the damage that was done some hundred years before. He has inspired the people faced incredible challenges from without, defeated ever-growing opposition, and even faced opposition from within, and now he's hanging the gates on the wall. Talk about a whirlwind. Man, that's a, that's a crazy six months, isn't it? For the last two Sundays, we've looked at opposition in those various means. Some opposition coming from outside from folks like Samballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and we'll be talking more about them today. We've also looked at the oppression that was uh, perpetrated from within. We've seen difficult people delay the work through mocking and threats. We've seen famine and predatory lending practices almost bring the work to a screeching halt. But the fight is not over. <laughs> Nehemiah is successful in finishing the work. But you know, the last mile of the marathon is always the hardest to run. I don't know. I'm not a marathon runner. Um, but I'm told by those who are that that last mile really takes all you've got. Back in chapter 4, the opposition attacked the people in mass. They pretty much attacked everybody at once. Um, they, they directed their efforts more at the people who were doing the work, right? Because if you get them to stop, it doesn't matter how good the leadership is. If you can get the people to stop, then the work stops, right? Because no one man can rebuild this wall. It's going to take a bunch of folks. So if I can get the people afraid, if I can get the people to stop what they're doing, if I can get the people sidetracked or distracted away from the goal, well, then I've done my work. But now, now the opposition has realized we can't just get the people to stop. Nehemiah has faced this opposition very well. So now they decide that they have to do what is really the last ditch effort. The very last thing that you can do when you've got no argument to make, 
When you've got nothing else to stand on, when you know you've been beaten, the only track left for the enemy of God's man or God's woman is to attack them personally. Make no mistake about it. If you are doing the work that God wants you to do, if you are seeking to do God's will, you will be attacked directly. Now, it may not happen at first. It may take some time. But believe you me, it's coming straight to your door. It's not something you can avoid. It's not something you can say, well, well, you know, I just want to, I just want to live peaceably with all men. You know what Paul says in that verse? He says, as much as lies within you, because it's not always up to you. Sometimes people are just against you because you're doing what God wants you to do. And make no mistake about it, it will come directly at you. The prevailing winds of the God of this age will always blow in the face of the one seeking to do God's will. Some of the opposition will affect others around you, but there will always be opposition that comes directly at you. That's what Nehemiah is facing in this chapter. All the opposition's guns are turned on him. Now, I began by reading 15 and 16 because I wanted you to see the results first. Normally, we don't like to do this. Normally, we like to go in order and, and show how things happen because that's how we come about them in life. But I want you to keep in mind the results throughout this whole process because the results are that the work gets finished. The results are in 52 days, the wall is rebuilt and the enemies of God's work have been defeated. I want you to see that first because that's what always happens. When you oppose God, you are always defeated. Now, it may not come very quick. This 52 days is a pretty, pretty speedy process. Less than two months. You go from, in some places, no wall at all, and in other places, a pretty good foundation to start on. You end up with more than a mile and a half of wall. Some estimates, if certain parts of the wall were included and we're not really sure, um, over two miles of wall. I'd start with the results because I want you to keep those in mind. What's going to happen is you're going to be opposed. You're going to, you're going to try to do God's will and you're going to be opposed in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And it's going to be easy to look at the opposition. It's going to be easy to look at the trial and the circumstance in front of you and miss the big picture. So I want you to keep the big picture that God is going to accomplish his purposes straight in your mind. I want you to have that in your mind so that when you have this opposition against you, when you're facing these people that are trying to stop you, and when you're facing the gates of hell that will not prevail, you will, you will know they're not going to win. All I got to do is finish the task. In fact, that's what Jesus says, right? They're not going to win. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see that? The church fights and defeats hell as it works to further God's kingdom on earth. For Nehemiah, the opposition's been attacking those under him. Now they face him. Look at how they attack. Look at verse 1. The first step in this process, not always, it's not always going to look like this, but this is where they start. They start with some diplomatic efforts. But let's, let's call it diplomatic. It's not really diplomatic, but you'll see why I say that in a minute. All right, verse 1. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, 
Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakephirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Two of the three ringleaders pair up for this attack. It starts looking more like a summit of leaders. Come meet with us, they urged Nehemiah. Verse 4 tells us they sent this request four different times. And it might sound like a good thing at first. Hey, wait a minute. Let's see. A diplomatic meeting among fellow governors and leaders of the region? This could be good for trade. Hey, now that we finished the wall, maybe maybe they've realized, all right, we're not going to stop it. So, so maybe now they're seeking to form an alliance, a partnership with us. Maybe we could get some good out of this deal. Maybe, maybe they're seeking to establish peace with us. You know, and, and we might have a wall, but we, there's still a lot of work to do. There's not many houses in this wall. We don't have a whole lot of folks. We need to establish some businesses. We need to get the economy running. We need to get folks moving in. We need to, we need to bring folks into the city so that we can bring it back to life. I mean, the whole point of building this wall wasn't just to have this walled-in area. It was to have a city that was vibrant and alive. A city that had been dead for a century now. So maybe this is a good thing. Nehemiah doesn't fall into the trap. He sees right through it. He, he, he sees they don't really intend for good. Where this is located, the plain of Ono, would have been either just outside or on the very outskirts of the territory of Judah. They're luring him away. It's a trap. He says that at the end of our suit, they intended to do me harm. They want to harm him. They're not looking for peace deals. They're not looking for trade alliances. They're looking to harm Nehemiah. They're still looking to stop the work. Now you think, well, wait a minute, the wall's finished. All they got to do is hang the gates. Yes. And until you hang the gates, what good is a wall? It just makes everybody come through this way. That's all it does. It's a funnel. For the wall to actually be successful, there needs to be a way to lock it up so that people can't get through. Because right now there are gaping holes where every gate is, including several around the temple. This needs to be taken care of. And Nehemiah knows that. So he answers them. Verse 3. Can I paraphrase verse 3? Can I paraphrase it? No. Leave me alone. I got work to do. Here's what he says. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now that's exactly what they want, right? They want the work to stop. But he says, no, I'm not. I'm doing a great work. I've got more important things to do than to chit-chat with you folks. Now, but that's not nice. No, it's not. But they're trying to hurt him. If someone's trying to hurt you, you don't coddle them. At the very least, you defend yourself, right? I was taught, when I was a kid, I took Kung Fu, and I was taught in Kung Fu, you you don't attack people. But if they're attacking you, you put them down. Like, you don't, you don't let them keep attacking you. You put them down enough to get away. You, you do enough damage to them that you are safe. You don't do more. You don't go, go chasing after folks and you don't go looking for trouble. But if trouble comes, you respond and you get out of there, right? And that might mean hurting somebody. That might mean kicking them in a place that really hurts. That might mean putting a little hurt on them to, to, to just get them to stop attacking you. But, but you're going to have to do something. 
right? It's never just, it's never just walk away and stay away. Because sometimes the trouble comes right at you. You've got to defend yourself. That's what Nehemiah's doing. He's defending himself. There's no, there's no room for niceties now. These folks are out to get him. It's one thing when your opponent is like, you know, you can do that if you want, and I'll just do my own thing over here. That's not really an opponent, is it? But when someone says, no, you have to stop, that's the time to react. That's the time to fight for what's right. The fight might involve swords. Nehemiah's did. Thankfully, they didn't have to use them, but they had to have them. The fight might not involve swords. It might involve just a short, curt reply. No, I'm doing too much. I've I've got more important matters to do. Leave me alone. Maybe all it takes. But that's not all it takes for these guys because, well, after four times of getting the same response, you think they just gave up? No, they just changed their tactic. And in fact, instead of a little more diplomacy, let's let's bring a little more strong army. Verse 5. Yeah, verse 5. In the same way, Samballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me, with an open letter in his hand. Now, in that day, letters, correspondence between government officials, correspondence between important people was always sealed. Do you know why it was sealed? Same reason we seal envelopes today, to keep other people from looking in them. You send an envelope in the mail, you don't send it open, do you? Why not? Because you want that birthday card to get to that person. You want that letter to get to that person. You want that bill payment to get to that company, right? When you seal an envelope, you are saying that nobody except the addressee has the right to open this letter. That's what they did in that day. Except uh, Sam Ballant says, let's just skip the formalities and let's get straight to the point. He sends an open letter. That means anybody and everybody along the way could find out what it says. If you were carrying the letter and it was sealed, you, you had specific instructions. You give it to this one person. Perhaps you read it to that person. Perhaps you hand it to them to read. But you get it to that one person. Nobody else finds out what's in that letter. But with an open letter, hey, what you got there? Oh, I got this open letter. Oh, you need to hear this. Hey, check this out. With an open letter, it's it's game. It, it's open season for whatever's in that letter. In other words, anybody has the right to hear it. So he sends this open letter. What does this open letter say? Verse 6, and it was written... It is reported among the nations. They are saying, y'all ever encounter that? Y'all ever, y'all ever have a friend come up to you and say, you know, have you heard what people are saying? Y'all ever have that? How often are they reporting to you what others are saying and not what they're saying? It's the anonymous they. It's always some mysterious they somewhere out there that do all kinds of junk, say all kinds of things they shouldn't say, Right? You know what they say. Who's they? You. (laughs) The person who's saying it. (laughs) That's who's they. It is reported among the nations. And Gashem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. I wouldn't want the king to hear about this. Sure would be a shame if this letter went to Susa. Wouldn't that be terrible? Why don't you come over here and let's have a chat? Diplomacy didn't work. 
So they go for the knockout punch. They make open accusations of treason. And this, by the way, um, you want to know where the rumor started? Look back in chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, that they're rebuilding the wall, they geared at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? It is reported among the nations. Yeah, you started the report. These are the guys that actually started the rumors. And he's saying, now it's reported. And Geshem also says it, as though that adds authority. I love how Sam Ballot puts it on Geshem. <laughs> Sam Ballot's writing and he says, you know, you know, there's these reports and Geshem's saying it too. Please. Nehemiah knows exactly what's going on. But even though he knows what's going on, this is still dangerous. Either you come to us or the king hears about all this. This actually worked. If you look back in Ezra chapter 4, they are rebuilding the temple and there are some opponents and what do they do? They send a letter to the king. At that time, the king was Darius. And they said, King Darius, live forever. You know, because that's what you say to the king. These Jews are rebuilding this temple. You know, as soon as they get it rebuilt, they're just going to rebel against you. In fact, don't take our word for it. Check the records. You'll see this city has a long history of rebelling against kings. So the king sent. He checked the records. Sure enough, those Jerusalem folks, they just don't know how to behave constantly rebelling. He shut the temple work down. Just like that. Didn't even listen to the other side of the story. Just shut it down. You know, for a for an empire whose laws cannot be changed, the, the king sure changed his mind a lot. This tactic has a real danger that the king is going to see his cupbearer committing treason. The thought is, well, perhaps I should just go Perhaps I should just talk with them. Because if this gets to the king, it's going to be bad. And that's not to mention what will happen to the city. You've got all these folks. All these folks that are moving here. All these folks that are doing this work. What's going to happen with them? If Nehemiah goes to the meeting, however, he's putting himself in harm's way. And he's risking this work being ended either way. What's he to do? There's no good options. Well, when there's no good options, find a better option. And in, in Nehemiah's case, it's just to remain obedient. Look in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things have been done as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. He sees right through it. He knows it's you. It's you. It's you the one who's spreading these rumors. You're making all this up. Notice why, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But God, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. In other words, Nehemiah says, they want my hands to be weak. God, make them strong. So the opposition's attacking through a seemingly peaceful diplomacy and through an outright open threat. But Nehemiah doesn't budge. But then there's more opposition. From well, it might be an unlikely place. Verse 10. Now, I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mahatibel, who was confined to his home. We don't know why he was confined. That, that word could have multiple meanings. So we don't know if he's like under arrest or if he's just um, like a shut-in, like he's physically unable to get out, or if he imposed it himself, like he's like as though God had told this prophet 
lock yourself in your own house. Okay? We don't know exactly why he's confined to his house. But Nehemiah goes to visit him. He says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Nehemiah, we don't know a whole lot about his family. We know his father's name is Hekeliah, but we don't really know much about him. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know uh, most of the details of his upbringing, you know, in terms of like his heritage. But he's almost certainly not a Levite. And do you know how many Levites are permitted to go into the temple? I'll give you a hint. It's a really low number. Nope. It's seven less than that. None. If you are a Levite, you could not go in the temple. You know what would happen if you went into the temple and you weren't a Levite? You'd, you'd be struck down dead. That was the law. So this guy is telling Nehemiah, who's almost certainly not a Levite, quite possibly disqualified from being in the temple for other reasons too. Since he was serving the king, he was likely a eunuch. Eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. If he goes into the temple, he is violating the law of God. Nehemiah recognizes this. He sees, he sees this is not a prophet speaking from God. It may seem like a prophet, and it is a prophet, and he's trusted this guy before. The implication of this text is that he went to this individual listening to what he had to say, ready for God to speak through him. But when he hears the word, he recognizes it's not true. How does he know it's not true? James, skip ahead to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. And when... He, uh, Isaiah says, um, God speaks through Isaiah. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire the dead on behalf of the living? Watch this. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If you have a prophet who is speaking in direct contradiction to God's very own words in Scripture, that's not a prophet. That's a false prophet. No matter how many times he's gotten it right before. No matter how many times that he has told the truth before. If he is not lining up his testimony with God's testimony, then you can be sure he's wrong. By the way, when you hear people who purport to be speaking of God, look for that. How closely does what they say line up with Scripture? Not just what words do they use. Because this is a common tactic. Use the right words to say something a little bit different from what God says. Can, I mean, justice. How, how various are the meanings of justice in today's world? There's a lot of different definitions for justice that are not justice. Love. Love is not what most people think it is. They'll use good words. They'll use them in bad ways. They'll use good words because we think of them in certain context, but they will use them in a different context to say something totally opposite. And the fact of the matter is, if you want to find out whether someone is really speaking truth, don't just listen to the words they say. Listen to what those words mean because I guarantee you the way that they use those good words is wrong. What they're saying is wrong. You can have the right vocabulary. That's why we had vocabulary tests in school, right? 
Because you can have the word, but if you don't know what it means, you can't really use it. It's the whole point of vocabulary test. He hears these words, good words, in one sense. I mean, he's, he's talking about the house of God. He, he's saying they're coming to kill you. What he says sounds okay, except it's not. It's directly in violation with God's law. So Nehemiah answers in verse 11, but I said, should, shut, should, sorry, should such a man as I run away? That, I did not expect that to be a tongue twister. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? He recognizes it. I will not go in. Then he gives us some insight. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy. Why? Be, against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Oh, here we go. This is not just the prophet being opposed. This is the prophet being hired as a hitman, as opposition. They want to discredit Nehemiah. Him going into the temple at the very least discredits him. It makes him look like he's cowering in fear. How can I stand up and say to this people, don't be afraid, but build, and then go run and hide myself because there's a little bit of a threat on me? That doesn't die. At the very least, he will discredit himself in the, in the minds of the workers. But at worst, he gets himself killed because he's broken God's law. This was, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. We don't know what Noadiah did, but it was probably along the same lines, trying to convince him that God has spoken to him through them when really he had not. Here's our litmus test. If the prophet disagrees with God, then ditch the prophet. There you go. If what someone is telling you doesn't line up with God's word, they're wrong. And it's all right. They have the right to be wrong. Not smart, but it's all right. You don't have, the, you don't have to listen. You don't have to follow it. Do what God is telling you to do. But even this isn't all the opposition. Now, in the text comes 15 and 16, the wall was finished. But even when the wall is finished, there's still opposition. Look at verse 17. Do you, do you remember uh, the first two guys, Sanballat and Geshem? But there's three, right? There's three enemies. There's this third enemy named Tobiah. What was he doing during all this time? Well, he had his own strategy. Uh, look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Jeremiah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came from them, came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Do you, do you see the tactic he's running? He's playing this a little differently. James, get forward to verse, uh, verse 18 for me. Thank you, buddy. They are bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they also spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Have you noticed there is a pattern? There's a pattern that's, that's unveiling in this chapter. You, you might have missed it. Let's see if you can catch it. Look back in verse 9. For all, for they all wanted to frighten us. Verse 13. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. Verse 14. 
Remember Tobiah and Sebalat, oh my God, according to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 19, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Do you notice where the attack is? Every single one of these are one form of attack. All of it is seeking one outcome to make Nehemiah afraid. Fear. That's the end game. Fear. The most powerful weapon in the arsenals of hell is fear. If demonic forces can do nothing else but make you afraid, they have won the victory because that fear will paralyze you and make you worthless in God's work. Fear is their most effective means to stopping the kingdom of God from being advanced on earth. They will not stop the kingdom, but they will stop it through your fear. They will pause it. They will delay it. That's You really want to know what makes Nehemiah a great leader? It's that he won't give in to the fear. He remains resolute in the face of aggressive and passive resistance. He remains resolute in the uh, face of attackers who head on directly at him. He, he, he attacks them head on. In the story of David and Goliath, it says that Goliath starts walking toward David. David immediately starts running toward Goliath. like He's going to take him head on. It's that kind, that kind of fearlessness. Doesn't mean you don't feel fear, but it means you don't act on fear. You don't act in response to the fear. You do what God has called you to do. You are obedient to him, regardless of the opposition that's in front of you. Regardless of how big that giant might be, no matter what kind of fear they are trying to stoke in you, no matter what methods they are taking to oppose you, when you stand in the face of your opposition and you fight anyway, obedient to God's will, doing what He's called you to do, regardless of the fear, that's when you finish the task. If you want to accomplish God's will, if you want to be part of building the kingdom of God right here on earth, you have to finish the task. It's not enough to get it going. It's not enough to get it on the right track. It's not enough to correct the wrongs along the way. You must finish the task. You can't be caught up in fear. You can't be distracted. You can't allow others to get in your way. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how bad they are to you, no matter what odds or obstacles you face, don't quit. Finish the task. Nehemiah finished. Not only did he make sure the wall was built, he even made sure the ongoing operations were successful too. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. He puts the right people in the right places. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their own homes. He says, this is how it's going to run. Let's get the right men in the right leadership positions. My job is done. I'm ready to step aside. But let's put the right men in the right places. And let's get the right actions going on so that we will continue to be protected through day in and day out. The threat is still there. And if we're lax, if we're lax, we won't finish the task. 
The task of the wall, that's been done. Now the wall, now the wall stands to protect the city. But the wall does no good. In the words of Jerry Seinfeld, in order for this lock to work, the door must be closed. You cannot lock a door and leave it open and expect it to do anything. You got that, Mitchell? You got to actually shut the door. Shut the door. No, we're not going through that at all. We have to finish the task. And the biggest thing standing in our way is fear. So, two questions. One, what is God calling you to do? You're still breathing, right? Everybody's still breathing? I hope. I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't kill anybody. You might be asleep, but you're still breathing. What's God calling you to do? And then number two, what fear is in your way? What is it that's standing in your way? What is it that you are most afraid of that is keeping you from doing what God wants you to do? What is it? I'm going to be up here at the front. You want some help? You want some prayer? That God would help you overcome that fear? I'll be glad to pray with you. If not, you can just come to the altar and pray. Prayer works in your seat just as well, too. You don't have to come up here, but sometimes, I don't know, there's something about kneeling at the altar that just solidifies it a little bit better sometimes. Whatever, whatever God wants to do in you, he cannot do until you stop being afraid of whatever it is that's keeping you from acting. So what is that fear? Ask God to help you get over it, no matter what it may be. He's ready to help you. He's ready for you to finish the task. Don't let fear get in the way. Pray with me. Father, whatever those fears are, you, you know what they are in each and every one of our hearts. Reveal those to us. Help us know what's standing in the way between us following your will. And Father, help us to get rid of that and follow you. Maybe we don't overcome the fear by, by not feeling it anymore. Maybe we have to do things in, in the very face of that fear. But God, I know that if we will stop being paralyzed by it and we will just obey what you have called us to do, that you will do your part. Half the fears we have are completely unfounded. The other half are much worse in our minds than they are in real life. So Father, help them not paralyze us. Help us to respond in obedience rather than in fear. Do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.